We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Apostolic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. 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 Good morning. It's great to be back. Take your Bibles, please, or your devices, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Those verses will be up on the screen if you prefer. While you're turning, let me just uh, give you an update on the update on the update. Uh, Kingswood continues to do well. We're within two weeks of graduation, which means that the biggest prayer of our students is not that they not get COVID, but that they finish their assignments. So you can be praying for them. I know they'd appreciate that. I did want to mention a couple of things to you that may interest you. If you're a golfer, every fall we have a golf classic where teams from different churches come together, and it's a fundraiser for us, but it's a fun time for you. And uh, last year, we saw a church from uh, southwest Nova Scotia bring, I think it was four or five teams. It was almost 20 people came up, and they did it like a men's retreat. So if you're interested in doing that as a church, we can certainly uh, accommodate you as far as housing and help you with meals. So there's an idea for whoever your men's leader is. Uh, and then next March, March 2022, we're taking a trip to Israel, and uh, we would love to have you come along. Um, I'm co-leading that with Joel Gorvet from the Moncton Wesleyan Church, and um, it's a limited size group. We're just one bus. We're not getting any bigger than that, so, but it's, a great, it's going to be a great time. Uh, we'll do a 10 days in Israel and then a four-day optional extension to the country of Jordan and see the rose-red city of Petra and Amman, and oh, it's going to be great. So anyway, you can find out more about that at kingswood.edu. All right, that's the end of my commercial because you should have found 2 Corinthians 5 by now. Here we are, 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that your spirit can speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure this wasn't done on purpose, but I was given the two um, most seemingly irrelevant parts of the creed to talk about. The virgin birth, like a camel in the creche. Like, if you have a camel in your creche, great. If you don't, no big deal, as long as you got the manger and the other important parts. But a camel, optional. Not so. Virgin birth, crucial. That's what we talked about last time. Second coming, well, that's kind of like that annoying uncle that you try to avoid at your parties. Now, the reason he's annoying is because he's so out of touch. He's irrelevant. That's what we think about when we think about the second coming. It's like, what difference does this make to life? In fact, my dad was a Sunday school teacher before he passed away, and he, he was talking with his co-teacher about a topic to address in Sunday school, and dad suggested they talk about the second coming. And the co-teacher said, no, let's not do that. Let's, let's talk about something that really makes a difference in life. Irrelevance. That's what people think about when they think about the second coming. And if it's not irrelevance that makes us avoid this annoying uncle, it's conflict. This guy is controversial. You get close to him and he'll start talking about all whatever it is that's on his mind. His vein in the middle of his forehead pops out. His eyes get big. He, he just kind of drives home. And this is the way it is with eschatology, with last time stuff, right? There are those people, and you know who you are, who love this stuff. You eat it up. And you want to learn everything you're going to learn about the rapture and amillennialism and premillennialism and postmillennialism and post-tribulational rapture and all. It's what you live for. And the rest of us run from you like grim death because we don't like all that conflict. Well, here's the good news. You may have an uncle like that, but the second coming is not controversial. It's clearly in Scripture. It's so important in Scripture, they put it in the creed. And they didn't put everything in there. So whatever you think about the second coming before you started this sermon, now you know. This is not controversial. This is clear. The rapture, that's controversial. But the second coming and the rapture are two different things. The second coming is clearly taught in Scripture. But I think the real reason why we, annoy the, we, we avoid this annoying uncle is that he's right. He just says the kind of things that we don't want to hear. And face it, if the second coming is really going to happen, it means that this life that we're building for ourselves here and now will someday come to an end. And frankly, some of us are investing so much time and energy in this life here and now, we're not all that crazy about seeing it come to an end. And so we avoid the topic just because we're so... Well, we're so at home here. And the thing is that while we may avoid this uncle, we need to pay attention to him because scripture is clear. With the virgin birth, there were only two explicit passages that taught the virgin birth. It was implied everywhere else. Here, it seems to be taught everywhere and implied everywhere. It's everywhere in scripture. 
all over the place. Jesus talks about it all the time. The Apostle Paul in almost every one of his letters will talk about the second coming. In two of them, First and Second Thessalonians, it's a major theme. You find it all throughout the Old Testament. There it's referred to as the day of the Lord. And you see it everywhere. And of course, there's a whole book at the end of the New Testament of which the second coming is a major theme. So there's just no avoiding the second coming. And in fact, there's so many passages. I just picked one, but there's so many passages. Let me summarize what I see to be taught in Scripture about the second coming. There are four things that I'll mention. I'll spend most of my time on the last. The first thing is that it's certain. Jesus didn't say, if I return, will I find faith on the earth? He said, when I return. He did say, if I go away, I will come again to receive you to myself. My father's house, there's many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. If I go away, did he go away? Yes, then he will come again. Jesus is pretty clear about the fact that he wasn't done here. Throughout Scripture, it's a certainty that Jesus is returning. It's not a question of if Jesus is coming back, friends. It's only a question of when. So it is certain, but it is unpredictable. Not whether it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. And this is a major theme, too, throughout these passages. Even Jesus says, I don't know when. This is Jesus. He says, I don't know when. The Father knows, but I don't know. Hasn't been told to me. He says it's like a thief in the night. And if you think about that analogy, it makes sense. The only thing the thief has going for him is that no one knows when he's coming. If they knew when he was coming, they'd spring a trap on him. So it's unpredictable. Paul picks up this theme in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, this idea of a thief in the night. It's unpredictable. No one knows. Here's the third thing. It's soon. Jesus says toward the beginning of Revelation and at the end of Revelation, he says, I am coming soon. And you say, well, Steve, how is that? If it's unpredictable, how can we say it's soon? That seems contradictory. But there's another way of understanding soon. He's fine. He's good. Leave him there. There's another way of understanding soon, and that's imminent. Like, at any time. That's what I want you to hear. When Jesus says, I'm coming soon, it's not a time to look at your watch. It's a time to look at your heart. Because when he says, I'm coming soon, it means be ready at any moment. You don't know. I don't even know. But when I get the word, I'm coming back. You be ready. So certain, unpredictable, and near at hand. Here's the fourth thing. What's he coming back to do? And here again, Scripture is very clear. He's coming back to judge. Now, to be precise, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. But think of all the passages in the Gospels where Jesus talks about himself returning and how many of them have to do with Jesus coming back to judge. Remember that one in Matthew 25. I'm thinking of uh, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to sit on my throne with my angels, and we're going to divide the house between sheep and goats. So his purpose in coming back is to judge. This is what our passage talks about, that we will all, everybody in this room, 
we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, both the living and the dead. Now, that phrase is, is kind of unusual. We don't use that phrase very much. But it comes right out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. So why does he use this phrase? Well, it means like several things. One is it means everybody, because whoever you are right now, you're either living or you're dead. So it means everybody. Well, then why didn't he just say that Christ will come to judge Everybody. Well, I don't know for sure, but here's a guess. I think he might have wanted to emphasize the fact that judgment isn't just the passport control that separates earth from heaven. Like my dad died about two months ago. And and I don't think there was a customs agent or a passport official who was standing at the gates of heaven just checking dad's papers. This This isn't the judgment seat of Christ, the passport control between earth and heaven. Because... The living and the dead means it's everybody at a particular point in time. Everybody will be judged at Christ's return. So it's not just after you die. It's everybody will be judged at Christ's return. And I think that's the purpose for emphasizing living and dead. Here's another reason for emphasizing living and dead. Because if everybody is going to be judged at this particular point in time, it means the jig is up. The game is over. Ollie, ollie, outs and free. Like if you're playing hide and seek, the game is over when everybody's found. So if he's judging the living and the dead and everybody's judged at this point, the jig is up. Whatever life was like, whatever time was like before that, stops and everything else is new. That's what it means to judge the living and the dead. It also means that Christ is the one who's judging the living and the dead. And I just point this out because what it says is if you've chosen Christ, then you've chosen right. He's the one who gets to decide at the very end what happens next. He is the judge of the living and the dead. But to be honest with you, when I was studying this and I got to this passage that I'm looking at here today with you, particularly verse 10, look what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I got that. But now listen what it says. So that each of us may receive what is due us. For the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And and I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought the judgment seat of Christ, what happens then is going to be based on salvation by grace through faith. But this seems to be judging me on salvation by my works. Whatever I do in the body, whether good or bad. You see the dilemma? I mean, Paul says very clearly, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace... Are you saved through faith? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if it's clearly by grace through faith, then what is this idea of being judged by our works? And this isn't the only place where the Bible talks about it. Remember that passage in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. On what basis is Christ going to separate the sheep from the goats? 
Whatever you have done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it unto me. That's works. You've clothed the naked. You've fed the hungry. You've visited those who are sick and in prison. That's works. And then we go to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, and then 22, verse 12, twice. We are told that there are books, they will be opened, and what is written in them are the things that we've done in the body for which we shall be judged. You see my problem? Are we judged by grace through faith and that not of works, or are we judged by works? You remember James? The Apostle James, I mean. You remember what he said about this? He said, you show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. He said, faith without works is dead. So apparently the works on which we are going to be judged at the second coming of Christ are not works that are our way of earning salvation, The works on which we're going to be judged are the works that come from our faith. Our salvation is by grace through faith, but if that faith is alive, it will produce good works. And if it doesn't produce good works, are you listening? If it doesn't produce good works, you got a problem. So it's not contradictory. And we would have known this if we'd have just kept going in Ephesians 2. Paul says, for by grace are you saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves... It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Here's verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So no contradiction here. Our salvation is by grace through faith, but if we're truly saved, it needs to be demonstrated by our works, and that's what the judgment seat of Christ will reveal. But I got a bigger problem. And that is, I have a hard time thinking of Christ as the judge. Oh, you say, Steve, get over it. (laughs) That's what it says. But maybe you feel that way too. I mean, this is the one who died for me. This is the one with whom I have a personal relationship. This is the one I talked to this morning before I came up here. And actually several times on the way up here. This is the one I talked to just while I was sitting back there. This is my brother in in the family of God, and, and, and he's the one that's going to be sitting up there with those black robes and white wig opening my dirty laundry to investigate. I mean, you already know that, Jesus. You already know what I've done. What's the point of this judgment seat of Christ, this adjudication of what I've done? And again, you say, Steve, get over it. This is what he says. You're going to have to bear this scrutiny. And, and, and I got to say, I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't want to make Scripture subject to my opinions. I don't want to hold Scripture back just because I can't understand it. It can't be true. I'm not, that's not right. But then it occurs to me, maybe there's more to this judgment thing than I realized. Maybe the judgment seat of Christ is best pictured in some way other than a great big high bench and a black-robed, white-wigged figure. Maybe there's another picture of judgment here. And then it occurs to me that when you turn on the light, you're judging. You're revealing. Revealing something is a form 
of judgment. It's a demonstration and an instantaneous demonstration of that, of where things actually stand. Remember when Jesus revealed himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection? He comes upon these two disciples who are walking from Emmaus to Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're all discouraged, and they tell him why they're discouraged. And Jesus says to them, well, you guys are dense. That's my translation of it. He says, you guys are dense. This is like what the Bible says. And he takes them through all the Old Testament, shows them this. And we find out later that while he says this, their hearts are kind of heartburn. And then they invite him to dinner, and while they're at dinner, he breaks the bread, and suddenly, Luke tells us, their eyes were opened, and they saw things clearly. And I would suggest to you that was a moment of judgment, that what they had committed themselves to and who they had followed for those years, though it was in in doubt on that fateful weekend, when Jesus revealed himself to them, everything became clear. He was the Lord of all. He was the Messiah. They had their doubts, but now they know, and we know they know because they jump back in their car and they, no, actually they walk the seven miles back to Jerusalem. Even though they told Jesus, it's too dangerous, you don't want to be. They jump and on that road and back they go. Why? Because they want to tell their fellow disciples, this is true. That's what judgment does. So what if Jesus... At the judgment seat of Christ, what if Jesus is not just the adjudicator? What if he's also the illuminator? What if the judgment seat of Christ is the instantaneous illumination of the truth for everybody to see? And those who have been longing for the truth and living for the truth and committing themselves to the truth instantaneously know they've made the right decision. And those who haven't know that instantaneously as well. What if that's what the judgment seat of Christ looks like? What if it's even more than that? What if it's even more than illumination? What if it's renovation? You've probably read that, the Chronicles of Narnia, the stories that C.S. Lewis told about Christianity. And you've probably read the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the Christ figure Aslan is absent from the land of Narnia. And because he's missing... It's always winter and never Christmas. And I don't know why that feels so appropriate today, but it does. But the children who've been brought magically into the land, sitting underground in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they hear the old truth. Wrongs become right when Aslan comes in sight. When he shakes his mane, it will be spring again. What is Lewis doing but just fleshing out in story form what Jesus tells us himself in the book of Revelation? Behold, I am making everything new. What if the judgment seat of Christ is that moment where in an instant the renovator makes everything new? 
and the injustice and the hurt and the questions that rack our brains and our lives and our hearts through this life are suddenly revealed and resolved at the judgment seat of Christ. No wonder the early church focused on the second coming. No wonder they prayed for the second coming. Maranatha, O Lord, come. That word Maranatha is not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. Why is that important? Well, before the early church was primarily Greek-speaking, in its earliest days, they spoke Aramaic, a dialect of Hebrew. And what we have here in 1 Corinthians 16.22 is the remnant of a very early prayer that the church prayed, O Lord, come. Behold, I'm making everything new. This is what the second coming of Christ will mean. That these lives that we've been working to build up as good and healthy and strong and positive as that is will be nothing compared to the new kingdom, the new heavens, and the new earth that the second coming will usher in. Behold, he says, I'm making everything new. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the prayer that should be on every Christian's heart. Well, besides praying that prayer... Here my suggestion to you this morning by way of application is to make it your goal to please him. Right out of this passage, Paul says, we're going to be getting these new bodies. Make it your goal to please him. Because listen, if you please him now, you will please him then. So make it your goal to please him. I don't have long here, but let me just say what does it mean to make it your goal to please him? Here's at the very basic, here's what it means to make it your goal to please him. It means to accept the free gift of eternal life that he makes available to you. Most familiar passage in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. Can you imagine the pleasure God would get if you accepted his free gift of eternal life? Jesus says in one of his parables that there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than 99 that don't need to repent. I can't help but think that one of those who's rejoicing in heaven at your return will be Jesus. So whatever else it means, make it your goal to please him means accepting him as your Savior and Lord. But it means more. To make it your goal to please him means that you're living on purpose. You have a goal. You're not just getting up and going through the motions. You're not just here filling time, waiting for something fun to happen. You have a goal. You have a purpose. And your goal is to please him. To please him, not everybody else. Some of us waste so much time trying to please our spouses, trying to please our parents, trying to please our children, trying to please our boss. It was one of the most liberating moments for me as a young pastor to realize I worked for the church. I worked for God. 
Make it your goal to please him. That's all that matters. And make it your goal to please him and not yourself. Because here's really where the rub comes. I mean, I work with incredible students. They, they are just amazing. And they're wrestling right now, most of them, with this question of whether they, what it means to give their hearts in ministry to God. Whether they make it their goal to please him or their parents or themselves. And, and, I, and I encourage them to make it their goal to please him, even if it means not pleasing themselves. But you know what I've noticed? We never outgrow this question. Every, every day, you and I have to ask the, answer the question, who are we going to please today? Who am I going to please in this conversation? Who am I going to please in my choices? Make it your goal every day with every choice to please him. And Paul even tells us how this works. He says, do you want to please him? Live by faith. Verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. To please him means to make choices based on what calls forth the most faith and faithfulness. Because when the Son of Man comes, when, not if, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Sometimes it isn't the choices we make. It's the circumstances we endure that call forth this faith. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's a lost loved one, someone who seems so far from the Lord. Maybe it's alienation in your family. I don't know what it is, but there's a temptation, isn't there? When we're going through these difficult times to, to challenge God with a, with a, really, God? Really? Is this how you treat your friends? If, if this is how you treat your friends, no, matter, no wonder you have so many enemies. Make it your goal to please him. Even then. Whatever you have to endure. Because I can tell you, whatever you have to endure, when the renovator comes, everything will be made new. Whatever doesn't make sense now will make sense then. Behold, I make everything new. Make it your goal to please him. To please him. He is a person. He is a person. You're not pleasing the church you're not pleasing a system of values. You're not pleasing a culturally appropriate manifestation of righteousness. You're pleasing him. There's a person on the other side of the line. We used to have an old-time evangelist, old holiness evangelist, who would come to church and preach for us. He brought an auto harp, and he sang accompanied by this auto harp. And if you don't know what an auto harp is, uh, look it up. But I remember one song he sang. By and by, when I look on his face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face, by and by, when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. Let's pray. Father, help us to live now 
to please you. Help us to please you, Lord Christ, because if we please you now, we'll please you on that day when you make everything new. In the name of the soon-coming King, amen.